Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Joy McCann. She is an environmental and cultural historian based at the Australian National University. She's here to talk about her new book, Wild Sea, A History of the Southern Ocean. It's published by New South Publishing in 2018, and it will be out from the University of Chicago Press in spring of 2019. Joy, welcome to the show. Hello, Jason. Well, Joy, it's great to have you on. So, Joy... Simple question to start off, but also a big question. Where is the Southern Ocean? (laughs) Yes, that is a good question. Um, So there are different ways of defining the Southern Ocean. And of course, um, particularly in the US, there may be different names for it as well. Uh, Some people know it as the Antarctic Ocean. It is the circumpolar ocean that uh, flows completely around the world, around Antarctica. And uh, there are as I say, various uh, definitions of exactly how far north that ocean reaches. Um, but the way I wrote the book, and certainly the way I knew it as I was growing up in South Australia, the ocean uh, reaches uh, all the way to the southern coastline of Australia and New Zealand, South America and, and South Africa. And that seems like a very large ocean. And um, of course, its northern waters merge with the waters of the Pacific, the Indian and the Atlantic Oceans, uh, which is why, of course, it's very difficult to draw a line on a map. But uh, when I was looking at the history of the ocean, I was going back to the early sailors' uh, maps and charts and the way they understood the Southern Ocean and the cha- the distinctive um, nature of the ocean um, as they're sailing southward through those winds and currents uh, from the Northern Hemisphere. So I decided to uh, focus on the whole region, even though I'm quite aware that some people uh, have uh, the, the boundary down around um, 60, latitude 60 degrees south. Some have it 55 degrees south. Australia actually uh, officially calls it uh, the Southern Ocean from about 40 degrees south. So it's a, it is a complex uh, question, but in fact, I've simplified it by simply going with the historical understanding of that region uh, because the Southern Hemisphere is known as the Ocean Hemisphere and it is um, has vast amounts of ocean area. So that's how I approached it. <laughs> you mentioned it, but I'd like to hear a little more. What What is the personal meaning that the Southern Ocean has, has to you from, from growing up? Yeah, well, growing up in South Australia, which is... Um, in, for people that don't know the geography of Australia, South Australia is the uh, is the state that uh, is about the centre south of the continent, um, and the coastline, um, uh, which is a, a fair chunk of the southern Australian coastline, uh, is really defined by very um, powerful currents and winds, and um, it's a it's a white rolling beaches and so white beaches where the the sea rolls in um and so as i was growing up i learned to swim in that ocean and i knew it as most well as australians generally know it as the southern ocean 
Um, and so we, um, in my growing up years, I was um, used to love watching it and, and actually speculating about the fact that Antarctica lay somewhere across thousands of kilometres away across that ocean because, in effect, from the southern coast of Australia, there is virtually no land between, apart from a couple of sub-Antarctic islands, between Australia and Antarctica. Um, and uh, so I was intrigued by that, and that's certainly what drew me to writing its history um, when I, years later, became an environmental historian. Um, and I also realised as I was starting to research the region that most people know the history of this area from Antarctic exploration, so voyages of discovery um, and uh, the race to the South Pole and so on. Um, but I was actually more interested in the ocean itself and uh, found that there was a huge, rich resource of information, which was really in many ways untapped. Um, and it covered both the history of whaling and sealing, of course, it was a big industry, as well as um, the history of. Um, Science, uh, a very big part of the history of the ocean has been told through scientific literature in addition to the history of exploration. So all of these things intrigued me. And what I wanted to do was rather than try and, you know, basically rewrite those stories, I wanted to weave them all together. But I also wanted to put the ocean at the centre because along the way I developed a huge emotional connection with that ocean, I guess, from my childhood. Um, but m myself and most people that I spoke to actually knew very little about it. You say that you know the story of the Southern Ocean is both a global and a local story. How, how so? Um, yes, yeah, so, certainly the history of exploration, maritime exploration, was pretty much a, a history of um, northern uh, empires and northern expeditions, northern vessels sailing from uh, Europe, from Britain, from the United States into the Southern Hemisphere in search of resources, in search of new lands, and obviously in, in more recent, uh, certainly in the, from the 19th century, um, uh, colonization of, of Southern lands. And so the um, that part of the story, which is quite well known, uh, is really about the sort of north-south oriented um, exploration of that ocean. Um, but I was, as a South Australian and, uh, and indeed as a, as a resident of the Southern Hemisphere, I became interested in the idea that the ocean itself, of course, flows west to east. Um, there's a whole um, uh, story about how that ocean formed and the fact that its winds and um, and currents are west to, west to east, they're easterly flowing. Um, and so I started to think about the natural history of the ocean and the fact that the creatures of the, that inhabit this ocean, and there are a great many, it's a very rich um, ocean in ecological terms, they uh, migrate often west to east uh, or they float with the currents, they drift, they're blown. Um, and so that started me thinking about the human history of the ocean from that perspective as well. So in, in effect, I wanted to start to look at the ocean as a local place as well, as a place for Southern Hemisphere people and the relationship, the history of the relationships that they have had with this ocean. Um, and, uh, and I found that just as intriguing as the, um, as the more conventional maritime histories of the region. One of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, 
you look at the Southern Ocean's history, you can go back, you know, many centuries. Uh, what did the ocean represent, you know, both logistically and figuratively for, you know, the explorers and navigators in the 1700s? Yeah, that, that's actually a really interesting question because um, uh, in Australia, we're very familiar with James Cook, a British navigator who who actually sailed into the Southern Hemisphere on voyages of discovery and exploration, mapping and charting the region. Um, three times. He had three voyages. And Australians know his voyage best, his first voyage of the Endeavour, which was the one in which um, he made claims of the eastern coast of Australia and indeed New Zealand for Great Britain, for the Crown, the British Crown, uh, in the 1770s or late 60s to 70s. And uh, the second voyage, though, was actually the one that interested me the most. And it's one that not many people know about. But he was on a mission for the British Admiralty uh, between 1772 and 75 to um, find a mythical great southern land. Now, this was an idea that had been around since the second century AD when the ancient Greek uh, philosophers, including Ptolemy, had theorised that the the planet, um, the, the northern hemisphere being um, uh, basically covered in land mass, would have to have a similar land mass uh, in the South Pole at the southern, in the southern part of the world. The southern area of the world, of course, at that point was completely unknown. So it was really imagined that there must be this land mass that was just waiting to be found, of course, um, to be discovered and colonised and may well have, you know, immense riches. So for many, many centuries, this idea was in existence, but really until the 18th century, there weren't the um, ships that were big enough um, to, or, or, you know, able to really voyage down much further beyond um, the coast of Africa and indeed South America. But from the mid to late 18th century, ships started, uh, of course, navigating around the Cape of Good Hope, Cape, and eventually Cape Horn, in search of um, uh, new new lands, new territories, new resources, and for the Dutch East Indies, which of course was in um, the realm which is now known as Indo- Indonesia, um, the voyages were um, important in sort of finding out what the just what the geography of this region was was about and what the winds were about, because wind, of course, with the sailing ships, was in- immensely important to know that they could actually use the winds to navigate around this area. So Cook's voyage, his second voyage of discovery uh, in the early 1770s, um, was not only about finding new trade routes, new lands to colonise, but he was actually interested in determining whether or not that this great southern landmass, the great un- unknown southern land, existed. And he sailed further south than any European had done so previously. He went uh, through to cross the Antarctic Circle not once but three times. But his very tiny ship, the Resolution, was, uh, of course, not built for those conditions. And he did navigate along the um, edge of the uh, the ice, uh, the sea ice, and in amongst the sea ice, there's some wonderful images of that voyage drawn from the deck of the ship by um, by his artist. Um, he was also collecting information, scientific information. Uh, he had a naturalist on board who was recording the environment as as they were sailing through it. So that was a very important part of. Um, the, the early history of understanding the nature of the Southern Ocean. In fact, 
Cook was the one to name it the Southern Ocean, um, simply because of its geographical location. Um, he also identified, and this was a very early uh, record recording of, or uh, his his diary notes record that um, the ship, once it sailed south from uh, the Cape of Good Hope off the tip of South Africa, encountered a dramatic change in temperature. So the temperature dropped uh, quite considerably, both the ocean temperature and the air temperature. And in fact, it uh, resulted in the, the death of a lot of the stock that he'd brought on board at, at the Cape of Good Hope that was just designed to you know, resupply the, the crew with, uh, with food during the long voyage. Um, and he was intrigued by this idea that there was a distinctive change in temperature. And of course, then he started encountering icebergs and ultimately was uh, not able to venture any further south. But what he did conclude finally was that there was no great southern land that was going to be inhabitable. That, uh, And he speculated that the ice that was surrounding his ship came from um, somewhere much further south, a landmass uh, that was covered in ice. And, and of course, he was correct in that. Um, in that um, speculation. Your book, you know, looks at the ocean through a lot of lenses, uh, in, including, you know, some of the living organisms that live in the ocean, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of ice uh, and, and the role of Antarctica. Um, you know, but one thing that, that really strikes me, and, and, you know, you come at this as an environmental and cultural historian, uh, you know, and that is the political fights over the ocean, uh, maybe you could tell us briefly about kind of the the fight over who should control the ocean and and what does the future of the ocean hold in a world in which climate change is becoming a, a bigger and bigger threat. Yes, it's a it's a, a an interesting part of the history. Um, of course, the sealing uh, industry followed in the wake of Cook's voyages, um, and following that was the history of the southern whaling industry, which was in fact um, one of the most lucrative um, industries at that time. And the um, whaling industry caused, well, the sealing and whaling industries in the in the Southern Ocean caused immense damage um, in terms of exploiting the, the huge numbers of, um, of creatures that were, that rely on this region for breeding and feeding and so on. Um, in fact, uh, what was happening, and it was a, a pattern that you see repeatedly, uh, sealing gangs would land on islands, sub-Antarctic islands, and completely kill every single seal, uh, fur seals and elephant seals, um, because of a, there was a lucrative trade in fur, seal fur, and then subsequently, once the fur seals were gone, in the oil of elephant seals, and of course the whales as well. So right through most of the 20th century, in fact, whale, the whaling industry was was powering along. Uh, it was, it's really only been quite recently that that whaling has been um, banned in the Southern Ocean. Um, and uh, that really was, I think, the when people realised just how many whales had been slaughtered, particularly in the first 60 years or so of the 20th century, and uh, how rapacious the industry was, really at a time after the Second World War when whale oil was really not being used um, and relied upon as it had been for things like industrial uh, use for machinery and uh, and also for margarine, which I find remarkable knowing that when I was growing up, mar uh, margarine was often made from whale oil. So the industry was really um, 
uh, I think the pivotal um, reason um, the uh, the there was a huge um, uh, interest in amongst the general populations, particularly well across the world, indeed, but in, in Australia, I know there were a great many um, people who were concerned about the fact that the whales were uh, disappearing from the oceans, and we now know that there were basically um, only a few thousand blue whales left, and blue whales, of course, are the largest creature to have ever lived on Earth. Um, and uh, all of these uh, whales that rely on the Southern Ocean for their food, when they're relying primarily on Antarctic prill. Um, so the uh, Second World War, particularly after the war, when um, the science of oceanography uh, was becoming more prominent, um, the technology from the wartime submarine um, surveillance sort of technology became available. There were, I think, a lot more research was happening, a lot more interest among scientists about just what had happened to the ecology of the, the Southern Ocean, the environment and the way in which uh, whaling and sealing and, and uh, indeed fishing um, was uh, depleting its resources. This was also coming at a time when there was a great deal of interest in international interest in the Antarctic. And, of course, the Antarctic Treaty uh, was signed in this in these early years uh, by 12 nations, including Australia, and ultimately by many, many more. And it's still a, the, one of the most successful international conservation treaties that we've ever had, um, because what it did was to declare uh, that the Antarctic continent and the surrounding seas, in other words, the waters immediately surrounding Antarctica, as far as latitude 60 degrees south, would be protected under the Antarctic Treaty and was preserved for science and peaceful scientific activity. So many nations, many, many nations share in the Southern Ocean's history and the Antarctic history. Um, many nations now participate in um, huge, um, very important scientific research. The Southern Ocean's uh, conservation, if you like, came a little later as a result of the treaty. And so I think it was understood during the 70s as more and more information became available about the nature of the Southern Ocean environment that, in fact, the Antarctic krill were, were a foundation species, were what they call a keystone species, um, that everything else in the Southern Ocean relied upon, all living creatures, birds, seabirds, penguins, seals, whales. And if the Antarctic krill, which was at the time being fished for um, as a potential new uh, source of um, protein for the world, to feed the world. There was a big sort of cry about feeding the world protein. And, of course, the Antarctic krill was thought to be so abundant, and it is an enormously abundant creature, a tiny shrimp-like creature about the size of a human finger. But there are so many of them that their combined weight weighs more than the entire human population of the globe. It's a pretty hard thing to get your head around, but it, it is such an important and so uh, prolific creature. However, it was being fished during the 70s, um, particularly by uh, the time by uh, Russian and uh, Japanese uh, vessels, but um, also being uh, looked at as a potential industry by other nations. And uh, there was a lot of concern amongst the scientists and uh, policymakers that overfishing of krill would actually destroy the entire 
what they called an ecosystem. And it was really the first time that the idea of an ocean as an ecosystem in which everything is related to everything else became uh, part of a, a treaty, an international convention. And so it was really the Southern Ocean's uh, vulnerability to overfishing, to overexploitation that followed on after the Antarctic Treaty uh, that came to be a, um, the centrepiece of the what they call the Camelar Convention. It's the, uh, now if I can remember this off the top of my head, it's the Convention on the Conservation of Living um, Marine Antarctic Resources. So a uh, very, very important conservation um, project that continues to this day. And in more recent decades, you know, the, the threats never go away, of course, in terms of um, harvesting in what are incredibly wild and stormy and relatively inaccessible um, ocean spaces. Uh, whilst we have economic exclusion zones around many countries now, there are still high seas that uh, are beyond the reach of any nation. And so the Camelot Treaty is an important treaty for um, international conservation and governance, if you like. And uh, I think the latest issue we have now is or one of the more recent issues that people have been concerned about is the uh, long line fishing, which is done legally as well as in, illegally in some places. Um, but the nature of long line fishing is that um, it makes the seabirds and particularly the wandering albatross, which is a highly threatened species, vulnerable to um, the long line hooks, which are dropped on mass in one area and dropped to their deep sea um, hooks uh, fishing the Patagonian and Antarctic toothfish. So whilst fishing is carried on legally, um, sometimes the methods of fishing and harvesting uh, can be a threat to um, species. And so in such a, an incredibly remote and vast ocean that's very difficult to, to um, I guess, monitor and, um, and to police, uh, it's, uh, it, 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 is, it does continue to be an important um, Point that this region is uh, the subject of great interest uh, by, by scientists, by governments and internationally by those who are concerned about the Southern Ocean and its incredibly important role in, um, in not just in the terms of its marine resources but also its role in the ocean circulation patterns of the world. Joy, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That's Joy McCann. She's an environmental and cultural historian based at the Australian National University. Her new book is Wild Sea, A History of the Southern Ocean. It's published by New South Publishing this year, and it's out from the University of Chicago Press in spring of 2019. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.